from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Bill Harley on September 25, 2017. Bill and his wife, Jean, have written two books published by Calumet Editions. These two books are Now That I'm Here, What Should I Be Doing? And the other book is Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. It is their second book, Transformed, that describes the concept of compassionate consultation and how important this idea is in this divisive culture we currently live in. We talk about the concept of compassionate consultation in the interview. I started the interview by asking Bill where he grew up and what was it like growing up there. I grew up in the capital city of Minnesota, St. Paul, Minnesota. I grew up in a Protestant family. We were Methodists originally and then found a better preacher and became Presbyterians and as I grew up through uh, early adolescence and adolescence, I increasingly found myself realizing that I was sure I was definitely a Christian, but I all I was learning about denominationalism just didn't make sense to me. It seemed like everybody was arguing over peripheral stuff and superficial stuff and not the essence of the Christian message. So I started searching, really, I would say, in kind of my early adolescence. I went to a junior high school on the University of Minnesota campus at University High School. It was an experimental high school, and my mother had gone there. And one day, I there was a little village right connected to this campus called Dinky Town. And one day, I walked by the, the bookstore that everybody bought their textbooks and other books from, and there was a paperback Quran in the in the window. I had heard of the Quran. I knew that it was the Holy Book of Islam, but I didn't know anything else about it. And so I. I went in and bought it. So for the next several years, I, I had the Bible by my bedstand and I had the Quran by my bedstand. And I was reading these two books and finding amazing similarities, a lot of the same stories in them. And I started to have the sense of the commonality of the religions, at least that I knew about. I kind of continued in this way I, into, I, I was in my college years in the 1960s and I graduated from high school in 63. and went out to the East Coast for my freshman year to a, a Eastern College, Brown University, and I continued my search out there. I was trying to find ultimate answers, even as I was trying to study and pass my courses. And I eventually transferred back to my, on my sophomore year just because it was costing my family a mint to send me out there, and I really wanted to be in a Midwestern university. And I continued searching through those years. These, these were the Vietnam War years and the Civil Rights Movement years, and there was a lot of upheaval in society. I got my my BA degree in English and American literature and didn't know what I wanted to do. And my my parents said, well, you should go to law school, become a lawyer like your your grandfather. And so I I applied and got into law school, the University of Minnesota Law School for a year and, and just hated it. I mean, law is a very important field. I have great respect for lawyers. I just, it wasn't for me. It was, I thought it was going to be more about justice and it seemed it was more about 
adversarial and partisan debate. So anyway, during that year, I had to do something because I had a student deferment, and if I stepped out of school, I would have been drafted, and I joined a, a U.S. Army medical unit uh, at Fort Snelling, just which is part of the Twin City area, and it was a hospital unit. I got in there, and and by summertime, at the end of that year, I resigned from law school and went to my basic training in Fort Polk, Louisiana. I had an interesting thing happen to me. I mentioned this in our first book. I had brought all these classic American and British novels and pieces of literature with me because I knew that the Army was going to be sort of a intellectual wasteland. I had them in my duffel bag, and when we got to the base, we, I flew into Fort Polk. All of us were bussed out to the Fort Polk, Louisiana base, and the buses pulled up, and we got out on the pavement, and all the drill sergeants were there selling dump out your, your duffel bags, put everything out, spread it out on the pavement. And they, they were taking away knives and guns and drugs and all sorts of things. And strangely, they took away my paperback books. I was standing there at attention and just sort of uh, appalled that they would do that. But I, I had the sense to know that complaining to a drill sergeant on the first day of active duty was not a wise step. So I just took it. And the only thing they left me with was a Gideon's Bible that had been handed to me when I my plane landed at the Fort Polk, Louisiana airport that day. The Gideons were there handing out Bibles to all the inductees. And on the spot, I said to myself, gee, maybe, maybe I should spend this next six months, three months basic training, three months medical training, reading the Bible from cover to cover and getting my spiritual life in order and clarifying my belief system. And that's what I did. I was nearing the end of my time at Fort Polk, still really not clear about findings, but I'd read the Bible cover to cover once. And then we went on to medical training at San Antonio, Texas at Fort Sam Houston. I continued that search. I read the Bible again, cover to cover. And I, I was coming to the conclusion that the, there's so much expectation of the return, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And that the movement of the drama in the, in the Bible, Old and New Testament, was so full of expectation that I had the sense that something has to have happened. Something has to have occurred from the divine realm that I haven't found. I had a practice. I went to medical training every day with my company uh, at Sam Houston. And every day at the end of training, I would go out to the running track and I'd run a mile or two around the track. And then I would walk probably for a mile to cool down and just praying to God to guide me, help me find the answers. And two weeks before my medical training was up, one night I was in the barracks showering after this workout regimen. A fellow in my company that I had never paid much attention to walked over to me and said, um, what are you doing for dinner tonight? And I said, nothing. What are you doing? And he said, well, let's go. I was thinking about going to San Antonio and getting some good Mexican food. Do you want to join me? And I said, yeah. And on the bus into dinner that night, we got talking about spiritual things. And he said, what religion are you? And I said, I'm a Christian. And I said, what religion are you? And he said, I'm a Baha'i. I had never heard the word before. We talked that whole evening over dinner about the Baha'i faith. Everything I learned about it was aligned with what the expectations that I was finding from my biblical study. I went to a fireside, which is a kind of an informal gathering the next night of Baha'is where people share something, a dimension about the faith and everyone shares their views. It's for 
people investigating the faith, but also just trying to widen their understanding of other faiths. Everything I heard there was fine. And I said to one of the, the hosts, of, I said, do you have a book that's written by Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith? I'd just like to go into your bedroom, if you don't mind, and read it a little bit. I went into that room and I spent about 20 minutes there reading. And it was the book of certitude that Baha'u'llah wrote. I realized as I read it, this is the same voice that I recognized from the Old and the New Testament. It was the same voice I recognized from the Quran. And two nights later, I became a Baha'i and came home and I was in the reserves. I was in the, re in the reserves for six years and waiting for our unit to be called up. Fortunately, it never was. At any rate, I told my wife and my wife-to-be, my wife and I had been dating for three years. We did. We just got engaged. And I told her all about this and she said, my... She said, I'm a Christian. I, I want to make sure I'm not making a mistake. And I said, well, just look at it and study it. She studied it for a year and then she became a Baha'i. So that's kind of my story of how I evolved from you know, Methodist to a Presbyterian to sort of just a Christian to becoming a Baha'i. And of course, I still feel that I'm a Christian, but I also feel like I'm a Muslim and a Buddhist and a Zoroastrian and a Hindu and, and a Muslim and a Jew. And so that's been a very fulfilling journey for me. That was a great story, Bill. Well, it's a true one. And I, and it's kind of <laughs> like I, I still look back on it with sort of amazement the way it worked. So I'm speaking with Bill Harley, a co-author of the book Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. And I guess Jean Harley is your wife? Yes. It, when I mentioned that I came back from the army and told my wife-to-be about the Baha'i faith, that was Jean, and she was a searching soul as well and studied the Baha'i faith for a year and then decided that it was the right thing. And so we've jointly um, been on this spiritual journey. We were married in 1969, so I think that means we've been married for 48 years. So, so together you wrote Transformed. Yes, we did. We wrote our first book, which is called Now That I'm Here, what should I be doing, which is really about the purposes of life, the spiritual growth dynamics designed into life by the creator and how to how to take action in life in alignment with those purposes and patterns. We wrote that together and we've also written the book Transform Together, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. So what inspired you, Bill, to start writing books? That's a great question, Warren. I, you know, being an English major, I got a, I later got a master's in English and American literature as well. So I I'm grounded in literature. Early in my life, I in those in my college years, I really started to flirt with the idea of could I make a living as a writer? And once Gina and I got married and started having children, I concluded pretty quickly that I wasn't going to risk that. So I ended up teaching for several years and then getting, getting, going into business for a few years. And then I went into the family business that my father had started. I spent 12 years there. And then finally, I went out on my own and became an organization development consultant and a leadership coach. So really, all those years went by and I, my, our children, you know, became of age, left the nest. And I still thought periodically about writing, but it was like, uh, I was so busy, busy making a living. And I did love the profession that I ended up in. I have another mystical story because in the 1990s, my mother passed away kind of before, before her time unexpectedly. She had a stroke and all her ancestors had lived into their 90s, and so we were we were pretty shocked. And and in the aftermath of that, I I got my found myself thinking about how life 
even though it seems like it's a long time, it's really short. I had this feeling I needed to bear fruit in some way that I hadn't. My wife and daughters and I ended up having a consultation on, on uh, using compassionate consultation, the subject of the second book. When we were on vacation, they were teenagers at the time, but I felt like maybe I should be writing. What should it be about? And they helped me kind of start fleshing in some ideas about what it should be. And my wife, Jean, at that time said, um, you know, if you're really moved to do this, I'll help you. And I said, wow, I welcome that. I really do. So our, our ideas of collaborating began then. But it wasn't until 2002 when Jean and I went to the World Center of the Baha'i Faith in Haifa, Israel, on a pilgrimage. We were there nine days and visited the holy sites of the Baha'i Faith, as well as those of Christianity and Judaism. And it was a very, very moving spiritual experience. And we came back to Minneapolis-St. Paul. Just a few weeks later, I, I had a dream one night that I had gone to a gathering at the Baha'i Center in Minneapolis, which is a, a you know an old building that can handle a lot of people. And in this dream, I went in the front door and passed a lot of the friends and co-workers that I'm familiar with in the cause and walked them right past them and went up to where all the rows of chairs were for the, the program that night. And I sat in the first row way over to the left wall, kind of in the corner of the room. And in the dream, as I sat there, I... I thought to myself, why are you sitting off by yourself? Why aren't you interacting with people like you would normally do? I heard the door of the, the front door of the Baha'i Center open, and I turned around in the dream, and there was a man in Middle Eastern garb coming in the door. You know, he had a turban on and kind of a long cloak, and I watched him, and he, he met my gaze and walked right toward me and came over to where I was sitting, and I just looked up at him in puzzlement and he handed me a pen and he said, this is a pen that was left for you by Abdu'l-Bahá. And I took the pen from him and he turned on his heel and he walked back across the room and out the door again. I awoke from the dream and just sat up in bed. I thought, my gosh, this, this is more than a dream. It wasn't just something I ate that gave me indigestion. It was, this was like a spiritual message. And Abdu'l-Bahá is the, the son of the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'lláh. Uh, Baha'u'lláh's name means the glory of God, and Abdu'l-Bahá means servant of glory. So Abdu'l-Bahá was like the most loyal and truest follower of Baha'u'lláh and his teachings. And after Baha'u'lláh's passing in 1892, he, in, his, in his will and testament, he named Abdu'l-Bahá as the center of his covenant and the exemplar of every Baha'i virtue. So it wasn't Abdu'l-Bahá that, that came to me in the stream. It was like one of his followers, but he said, this is a pen that was left for you by Abdu'l-Bahá. And I, and I thought, my gosh, this is really a mandate. So from that point on, Warren, in 2002, I, I told Jean about this dream, and both of us got even more serious about this. And we kind of cast it about for what, what are we supposed to write about? And when we looked at what we had really been doing in our professional lives, in our personal lives over the years, it became clear to us fairly quickly that it was partly about the purposes of life, the dynamics of spiritual growth that are designed into life by the creator, a lot of tests and difficulties and scaling of walls that you need to go over 
and then finding blessings on the other side that we've seen so much of that in our life that and there's a parable in the um, one of Baha'u'llah's books called The Seven Valleys and the Four Valleys about a lover seeking the beloved. We took that parable in that first book, and it is kind of the centerpiece of the book and showed how it tells us how we're supposed to navigate through this worldly existence and fulfill those purposes of life. And so we gradually became clear about that is one thing we needed to write about. And then the second thing we needed to write about was this process called the high consultation. And in our second book, we refer to this process as compassionate consultation. And I can explain why as we go forward here, if you're interested. But so those two subjects became the centerpiece of our, the mandate we felt we had to write these books. And so for the next 10 years, 10, well, 10 to 15 years, we spent every time we went on vacation, it, when, it was, when it was just the two of us, we, we worked on the books. Every weekend, we worked on the books. And, and in, in, in actuality, it was one book. We had all of this together under one cover originally. And when we finished it, having merged these two subjects with great effort and sweat equity, it was a, about a 600-page book. And we were not knowledgeable about publishing in the markets of books in the world or anything. But when we went publishers most of them thought it was you can't really sell a, a 600 page book anymore and we we went through a few publishers were turned down and then we went to this publisher Calumet editions and Gary Lindbergh is the publisher and he's kind of like an old-time publisher he they don't just turn you down or approve you he he had insights and he said to us I would love to publish this book under one condition and we said, what's that? And he said that you break it into two books. Initially, our jaws just dropped because we thought, oh, my gosh, we tried so hard to tether all this together. But over about a 48 period, we thought about what he said. And he explained why he, why he said it. We thought he is so right. He is absolutely right. So from that point, we spent another year separating these Siamese twins, these two books, into these one, this one book into two books. So one of them came out in uh, 2016, and that was the one on called um, Now That I'm Here, What Should I Be Doing About the Purposes of Life, and so on. And then the second book came out early in 2017 called Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. So I'm speaking with Bill Harley, who co-authored a book with Gene Harley called Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life, and Bill's describing previous works. Tell us what this part of the process where you're describing how to make decisions that change your life in this book called Transformed. What will readers find that you may feel they could use to help them in their lives by reading this book? Let me just frame it first, Warren, uh, and that is that in the first book that we wrote, and then at the beginning of this second book, Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life, we remind the reader of the findings from our survey of the world's religious scriptures, mankind's common faith heritage. There's a consensus that there are three major purposes of life on this earthly plane. The first is to know and love God. The second is to acquire spiritual attributes like humility patience, compassion, love, detachment, a sense of justice. 
and so on. Because these spiritual attributes, even though they're useful in this world, they'll be the essence of our being in the next world, which is spiritual in nature. And then the third ultimate purpose of life is to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization. The first two purposes could be, you know, one could just think about the next world, to know and love God, to acquire spiritual attributes. But this third ultimate purpose is to carry forward an ever-advancing civilization on this planet. So we, almost all the religions of the world have the theme of the, the coming of the kingdom of God to earth. That's really what that carry forward and ever advancing civilization is about. In addition, what we found in the consensus of the world scriptures was that life is, has been designed by the creator as a spiritual growth lab with tailored experiences for each of us to foster our growth. What do I mean by a growth lab? Well, what is a lab? Well, it's like a productive workspace where deliberate experimentation and, and scrutiny take place, where knowledge is sought, and careful actions, reflection, deductions, testing, and then adjustments and advances are consistently made. What we found in this survey was that this spiritual growth lab that is our, is our phrase for what we found from these world scriptures, one of the characteristics of it is the prevalence of tests and difficulties that occur in this earthly life that are meant to provide us with the opportunities for spiritual growth. In other words, tests and difficulties tailored to our own mind, heart, and spirit must be navigated by each of us to achieve the three ultimate purposes of life, if we're on purpose about life. So if you think about those dynamics and those purposes, decision-making in our, in our earthly existence becomes extremely important. This subject of our second book, Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life, is really about how to make decisions in a way that optimize your fulfilling of this, the three purposes of life and allow you to leverage the dynamics of spiritual growth designed into life by the creator, a lot of it through tests and difficulties, to propel yourself forward and others as well, because the whole idea is it's you can't have progress individually without progress collectively and from a spiritual standpoint. So what we wanted to do is because this, you know, Baha'u'llah's revelation is is immense and it's it has been likened and Baha'u'llah himself likens it to a ocean. This ocean is very deep. It's very large. It's over 100 volumes of scripture for the modern age. But one component of this revelation is what Baha'u'llah calls consultation and what we call compassionate consultation, which is a decision-making, problem-solving methodology. It also can be used just to deepen understanding or to assess a situation but especially we focus in on the decision-making, problem-solving dimension of it to accelerate progress individually and collectively and to achieve justice and unity and arrive at truth. So from our perspective, uh, we felt this is a really important dimension for the world that, that through divine revelation, an actual process for deliberating together 
making decisions together, solving problems together, whether it be individually, because one can use compassionate consultation in their individual life. As, as a couple, we can solve problems, make decisions through this methodology. As a family, as a neighborhood, as a community, as a city, as a state, as a nation. You know, I mean, I'm talking about the wheels of government. Governmental agencies and institutions could be using this process and world institutions could be doing the same thing. What it does is it allows us to address the realities of material existence in the most optimal way while still aligning our decisions with spiritual reality or spiritual principle so that the material and spiritual dimensions of society at any level are harmonized and in balance as opposed to what we propose is the case in the modern world is that material realities are much more in focus than spiritual realities. And many of our problems in world culture are because of this imbalance and compassionate consultation is the remedy for those problems. Um, so it's almost like we say that really this is the decision-making problem-solving methodology for the 21st century and beyond. Um, and so uh, we wrote this book really to try to make compassionate consultation more accessible to Baha'is, but especially to introduce it to non-Baha'is. So the, the book is written not just for Baha'is. I mean, it, there's a lot of quotes from Baha'i scriptures in it because the only source material on compassionate consultation is in the Baha'i scriptures. But in a lot of respects, we quote from all the world's religions on other dimensions in that book. But it's it's sort of like, you know, you don't have to be a Buddhist to to learn how to meditate. One of the gifts of the Buddhist revelation. Well, you don't have to be a Baha'i to use compassionate consultation. Um, and so it's we're really trying to offer a gift here to humanity, uh, the Baha'i parts of humanity, as well as the non-Baha'i aspects of humanity, because in both in both realms, um, we're still at a primitive stage of understanding it. Gene and I consider ourselves having written this book as still in a relatively primitive state of understanding about it. And it's going to take generations and the spiritualization of civilization to really fulfill the potential of this deliberation process. But we try to lay a foundation and, and give examples and models and we explore the atmospheric requirements of this process. It's a remarkable process because it draws forth latent qualities in the human being that have to be brought forth if this methodology is going to be effective. And that's one of the things we like about it because it it challenges what challenges one to grow. Based on our research, that's what existence is for, for both you know intellectual, emotional, psychological you know, material, physical, but especially spiritual growth. And this is a process that helps accelerate all of that. So I'm speaking with Bill Harley, who wrote the book Transformed, How to Make Decisions That Change Your Life with his wife, Jean Harley. So, Bill, would you like to read an excerpt from the book? You know, I think I'd like to read just a few paragraphs from the beginning of Chapter 2, Warren. Um, because it sort of sets the context for the world situation here. That'd be great. 
the subject of chapter two is our decision-making legacy and the emergence of compassionate consultation. I'm beginning to read now. The, the first heading is the decision-making crisis. Decisions, large and small, determine the course and quality of life for an individual, a couple, a family, a community, an institution, an organization, a country, and the world. Today, at both the macro and micro levels, the world is experiencing a decision-making crisis. Whether one looks at the relationships between nations or the relationships within nations at all levels of society, it is apparent that fragmentation, adversarial behavior, and human suffering are outpacing our decision-making resources. Today, it seems more common for decision-making to further divide people than to unify them, to create the perception of injustice rather than justice, and to increase ineffectiveness rather than reduce it. What is more, decision paralysis is increasingly the response to complex problems on the part of leaders and governmental bodies. At the same time, problems, dilemmas, and even opportunities are becoming so complex and multidimensional in the modern world that traditional decision-making methods, even when well-practiced, are proving inadequate to the task of achieving wise, just, robust, and unifying outcomes. Speaking of the era in which we live, the Baha'i writings say, the people are encircled with pain and calamities and are environed with hardships and trouble. Every trial doth attack man and every dire adversity doth assail him like unto the assault of a serpent." Unquote. Going back to the narrative, what is more, emerging problems loom on the global horizon in the health, political, environmental, food, water, energy, educational, religious, and economic spheres that will devastate humanity unless dramatically improved deliberation and decision-making processes are brought to bear on them. The collective price to humanity of continuing to make suboptimal decisions is growing exponentially. Humanity is in dire need of more effective ways to take counsel together. And, and Warren, in, in, at this point in the book, we we sort of introduce the, the four major decision-making methodologies that are in use in the world today. And then afterwards, we introduce compassionate consultation as a fifth kind, probably the less known of the decision-making types, but the one that probably holds the, the most potential for world peace, justice, and harmony. So I'm speaking with Bill Harley, who wrote, along with his wife, Jean Harley, the book Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. Bill, where can folks find this book and your other works? Well, both of our books are available on Amazon. All you need to do is search Bill and Jean Harley. Actually, it's listed as Bill Harley and Jean Harley. The title of the first one is, Now That I'm Here, What Should I Be Doing? And the, the title of the second book, the one we're talking about tonight, is Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. These books are also available in bookstores. I mean, not every bookstore will, will have them in stock, but if you ask at a, a Barnes & Noble, for example, they can have the book 
to you within a couple days. There's other online book selling sites out beyond Amazon, which are which the books are also available at. Gene and I have a website called BillAndGeneHarley.com. The and is spelled out, BillAndGeneHarley.com, all one, one word. On that uh, website, you can click on links to get to the books at our publisher or at Amazon or Hulu or the other some of the other publishing sites online. But you can also, if you choose, you can subscribe to our newsletter, which uh, really we blog about different aspects of spiritual growth and effective decision making. We blog on the subjects of both books because they sort of relate. In addition, there's a there's an appendix to the second book, Transform, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. We actually had written another couple of hundred pages beyond, which is in the book, which were appendices there. But they're, the book is, is meant to be practical. I mean, there was, there was one book out in the world about uh, consultation before we wrote this one. It was John Colstall's book called Consultation, Universal Lamp of Guidance. And it was a landmark book um, maybe 20 years ago. It's largely conceptual. It introduces the concept, of, but we wanted to write a book for this later stage of history where we gave all sorts of examples. We, we showed what happens when you use compassionate consultation versus you don't in a marriage interaction or in a family situation or in an organizational situation. And so the book is chock full of examples and case histories. And there's an appendix at the end of the book that that you can get free if you if you go to our billandgeneharley.com website. It adds a lot of more more detail to what we put in the book. It was it was more a matter of trying to create a book that didn't wear people out. <laughs> and so they can order this appendix, these appendices, I should say, if they if they go to that site. So I'm speaking with Bill Harley, who wrote along with his wife Jean Harley the book Transformed how to make the decisions that change your life. Bill, any final words before we close? I'd like to read one quote from the by scriptures here because it explains why we call this process compassionate consultation. That'd be great. This is a quote from, from Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder, where he says, he's referring to the great being, and that would be the creator, God. He says, the great being saith, the heaven of divine wisdom is illumined with the two luminaries of consultation and compassion. Take ye counsel together in all matters, inasmuch as consultation is the lamp of guidance, which leadeth the way and is the bestower of understanding. This quote is really, the first sentence of it is really in the, in the, in the masthead of our book. We feel this is the first book about consultation, which really treats compassion just as much as it treats consultation, because really Baha'u'llah is yoking those two qualities together. He's saying the heaven of divine wisdom is illumined with two luminaries. They're like two suns or two moons, however you want to think of it. But one of them is consultation and the other is compassion. And so a significant part of this book is about the processes of, of consultation. It, you know, there's different models of consultation shown, the six-step model, the three-step model, and, and so on. But there are several chapters early in the book that are dedicated just to what is compassion. 
compassion is defined in the dictionary as the feeling or emotion that arises when a person is moved by the suffering or distress of another and by the desire to relieve it. This is a distinguishing aspect of compassionate consultation. I mean, if you think about the deliberation that we often witness in our families, our neighborhoods, our organizations, and a lot of what we see on TV in governmental agencies or in the community or in conflicts or challenges in society, compassion is a missing element. In other words, most of the time people are arguing their perspective without much consideration of others' perspectives. And yet compassion, this this emotion where we're moved by the suffering or distress of another and we have a desire and a motivation and we take action to relieve it is essential to create the atmosphere that brings this deliberation process to life and makes it really a supercharged form of consensus decision-making beyond conventional consensus decision-making. And so, Warren, I I want to make mention that in the book, there are seven prime requisites for those who use compassionate consultation that come from the by scriptures. You know, one of them, for example, is purity of motive. And then there are 12 behavioral standards, which all are drawn from the writings of Baha'u'llah and Abdu'l-Bahá and Shoghi Effendi about this process. And one of those, just as an example, is separating your ego from your ideas. And of course, all these behavioral standards and all these prime requisites require the presence of compassion. And so one really needs to sort of study this process because it is it is different from anything that Gene or I have witnessed in our relatively long lives. And it is transformative for those who will submit themselves to the principles and the disciplines required of it. And when we do, what we find is that our true self, which is a a term for our higher nature, as opposed to our lower nature or animalistic nature, our true self is drawn forth. And the more we use it, the more established our true self or higher nature becomes in our existence. And we find ourselves increasingly able to embody our higher nature, which is really the reason all these messengers of God have come over the centuries to humanity. And it's the goal of life on this planet. When the kingdom of God comes to earth on this planet, higher and higher percentages of people will be coming from their true selves. And that's why there'll be a spiritualized civilization that is the golden age of humanity on this planet. And of course, these same qualities these compassion-based qualities that I'm describing in this higher nature, the true self, is the actor in the next world, which is spiritual in nature. And so pursuing these concepts not only helps us optimize our life in this worldly existence, but prepare for the next one. So Bill Harley, thank you for your insights on consultation and compassion and sharing about your work with your new book, Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. Thank you so much, Bill. Thank you, Warren. And, and my wife, Jean, has asked me to convey her, th- her, her greetings to you and to your listeners. Thank you so much. 
I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bill Harley, co-author of the book Transformed, How to Make the Decisions that Change Your Life. You can find their work on the website billandjeanharley.com. You can find this interview and other interviews at abahaiperspective.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for A Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
Thank you for laying the cornerstone.
WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.